BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cash back. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Well, she's got a lot of things on her mind to talk about now. She's taking care of her voice, so you know that she's not going to shout now. No Fun, the Jen Kirkman podcast, episode 406. Wow. I'm your host, Jen Kirkman, of this podcast, No Fun, the Jen Kirkman podcast. What am I going to talk about this week? I don't know. I mean, I do know, and I honestly have so many topics to talk about that I don't want to pre-announce in case I change my mind. I don't want to get your angry emails. Yeah, I got to talk about bugs and then you didn't and I really needed to hear about bugs that day you don't understand I had a hard day at work and I said oh I'm putting on the podcast and she said I'm going to talk about bugs and then I'm going to talk about lipstick and then I'm going to talk about bugs again and you didn't even talk about bugs at all and you promote it twice so I'm not going to tell you I'm just going to see where this goes oh by the way I am your host Jen Kirkman I am a comedian, an author, a TV writer. But really, my job these days is podcaster. I'm not out on tour. I ain't got no book. I ain't got no special coming. Although, as you heard in the ad, I am doing shows in Brooklyn, recording an album. They're very small shows. Um, and I'm playing with my hair right now. And you could see it if you were a Patreon subscriber. That is the best way to support me. I am not on tour. I'm not going to be on tour. Everyone getting all excited about these Brooklyn tickets. They can't even read a 130-character tweet that starts with, this is not a tour. I'm just recording an album because I'll be living in Brooklyn in December. So for me, it's a local show. Come to Canada. Which, there's a fucking global pandemic still, you freaks. I'm not going anywhere. And that calm down, please. Where were you when I was touring? Oh, I can't come out. I don't like to go out. Sorry, you didn't show up in 2018 or 2019. I ain't touring anymore. It's too much fucking work getting you people out of your fucking homes. Anyway, I don't even know what I was saying. Oh, these days, I'm not working as a comedian except those five shows or an author or a special doer. I'm working as a podcaster and I love it. This is my job. 
well, this free version isn't, let's be honest, but uh, Patreon is patreon.com slash Jen Kirkman if you want to support me. And I make it sound like, oh my God, such heavy lifting for you. All you got to do when you sign up for five bucks a month is enjoy four video versions a month that include bonus material. Every video version is ad-free, has about a half hour more of the podcast than the free audio version. And you get a bonus 20-minute episode about something going on in pop culture. And then you get just rando uploads that I do during the week of just videos of me saying hi from my car, ranting about something. Maybe I call my parents and I just throw up an episode talking on the phone to them. I throw up old stand-up. And the levels go up from $5. The more you pay, the more bonuses you get. And uh, honestly, I, I charge too little for all the goods you get. So if you want to support me, support me. Oh my God. Enough of that, right? Enough advertising. Let's just get into the show. But it does remind me of something I want to talk about. So, you know, I got to promote the stupid Patreon. Listen, I don't want to do any... Listen to me. You got to understand. I don't know if any of you like your job, but if someone said, oh, you never have to work again, here's a bag of money, the exact amount of money that you would need to never work again, you'd be like, okay. And you'd call your friend Nancy that sits next to you. Nancy, you can have all my pens, even the one with the little, you know, fuzzy thing on top. Yes, I'll tell you. No, I'm not dying. I just got handed a bag of money. Yes, I did count it before I called. I am quitting. You can have my tuna sandwich. It's in the fridge. It's only a day old. It should still be good. And if you don't eat it, can you at least throw it out? Because it's going to start to stink by tonight. And you can have everything on my desk. You can have my desk. I quit. I'm not going back. I got a bag of money. And Nancy's like, but I thought you loved your job here. And you're like, I do. As long as I have to have a job, this is the job I loved. But once someone handed me the bag of money, I like that more. So that's how I feel about, you know, podcasting and, you know, whatever job I do. It's like, yeah, I got lucky that, you know, after 15 years of toiling in the day job, no permanent work in the comedy field, scraping by. After 15 years, I started to get a steady flow of, oh, sometimes I have a TV writing job. Sometimes I'm just podcasting. Sometimes I'm touring. Sometimes I'm writing a book. That's great. But uh, I didn't know at 47 I'd still be working when I was early 20s. I thought that's when you retire. I don't know where I got that either because even in the good old days, right, the baby boomer generation, they got to retire at 55 to 65 and and people a little older than them, the greatest generation. Um, But I'm not not even 55. So why did I think I was going to retire at 47? I guess I just thought I was going to, I don't know. I don't know. I, I really don't. I had no concept of anything when I was in my early 20s. Didn't know what it took to retire. Didn't know anything. But uh, my point is, is even though I love my work, I don't love to work. So as long as I have to work, this is pretty good. But it's a fucking lot of work. Promoting this, that, co- yeah, blah, blah, blah. Cost me money to do this podcast. I'm not complaining. I'm getting to the point because I'm about to tell a story about someone yelling at me on the internet for promoting. So I'm like, hey, if you want to support me, join the podcast. Now, here's the thing. I mean, join the Patreon. 
I don't promote three times a day because I'm thinking, okay, Jimmy and Julie out there, they're reading every tweet. And I'm going to wear them down eventually by promoting three times a day. I don't do it because I think a particular person or set of people are seeing these. I think I promote three times a day because Twitter is huge now. Even though only like 2% of America's on it, everyone follows like a thousand people. And you might only check like a couple times a day, however often you <laughs> go pee. <laughs> And uh, you, you might not see my first tweet about the Patreon. You may not see the second one. You may see the, the third one. I'm doing it because different rounds of people at different times of day see it. And then there's some people who are on Twitter all day, and they take it personally how much I promote my podcast at the Patreon. It's like, dude, you're the one looking at this 24-7. Don't get mad at me. So I'm like, hey, the best way to support me is join the Patreon. Now, the reason I say that, again, I'm making a story out of this. This is not an ad. The the reason I say that is because people don't know anything about me if you're not listening to my podcast, right? They go, oh, she's on Netflix. She must have 80 million like Dave Chappelle. I've said this a million times. They might be like, I don't know. I'm going to wait for her to go on tour. So I have to tweet sometimes. I'm not on tour. This is the tour. Join the Patreon. And this guy writes out of the blue, you'd have to blow my mind to get me to join Patreon. I'm like, excuse me? Well, what do you want me to do? Have fireworks? I mean, do you literally have to blow your mind? Like, like, do you want to play Russian roulette? Like, what do you mean I have to blow your mind? <laughs> why? First of all, why do I have to? Because I know a lot of successful Patreons. Then I'm blowing anyone's mind. They couldn't even blow a feather. That's how light they are on content buzzing. And I'm like, can you expand on that? And he's like, well, every comedian is asking people for money these days. And we can only support the people we're really into. And I'm like, yeah, no shit, fuck. I'm talking to the people that are really into me. If you're not one of them, move along. But if you're like my biggest fan, but you've just been very busy this year, you're a fucking COVID ER nurse, and you haven't looked at Twitter, and you get home after your 16-month shift, they gave you a day off, and they're like, get right back here tomorrow, because nobody in America is getting the vaccine. You're like, okay. So you have a day off. You come home. You're like, well, let me catch up on the last 16 months of Twitter. I wonder if that comedian, Jen Kirkman, I love, has anything going on. You, you refresh my feed and you go, oh my God, she's a podcast. I had no idea. I've been in a COVID unit for 16 months. And before that, I had a life. I wasn't sitting around listening to podcasts. But I'm her biggest fan. So that's who it's for. Or people who listen to the podcast and they really don't know what's going on at Patreon. So they might want to see a clip that I put on Twitter. And they're like, all right, you know what? I do want that. But I said to this guy, I might have to blow your mind, but then you're not my prime audience. You're not that into it then. It's for people that are already such a huge fan that they're like, I just like a little more and I'd like to see her eyebrows. That's it. I mean, it's that simple. 
If if you're not my biggest fan, don't join, right? So then this, uh, he's like, well, I'm just saying, you know, content's going to be pretty special. Don't talk to me about content, buddy. And he seemed all mad. Oh, comedians are trying to get us to pay them. Yeah, you asshole. Like, we're on your side. If comedians that you love, that you think are great, are going, pay me for my work. And you're like, what the fuck? Why are so many of the awesome, more alternative, indie comedians asking me this? And then you look at who the famous ones are on TV all the time. And you go, oh, maybe because the people I like are kind of this more underground thing. And the way they stay afloat is we pay them because the corporate America of show business doesn't think there's enough fans for them to pay them. It's not a fucking conspiracy. We're not trying to get rich off our five bucks a month fucking subscriptions. My friend Tim Heidecker goes through this too. He's like, why are my fans so awful to me? I'm like, dude, I don't know. Maybe they have a secret meeting with my fans. I didn't know it was a sin to try to get paid from my work when no one else is paying me. So this other girl goes, you hate poor people. Excuse me? Excuse it. What now over here from this tweet? I hate poor people. Please, please explain. She's like, well, you're promoting something not everyone can afford. Okay, I'm not promoting the Hope Diamond on a platter of caviar served on the now defunct Concorde jet that used to fly from New York City to Paris in two hours. I'm saying if you got five bucks a month, you join my fucking Patreon. If you're a fan of mine that has five bucks a month, if you're poor, scroll on by. I'm sorry if I offended you by reminding you there's things you can't afford. But what's interesting to me as a former poor person. And as someone who is currently solidly middle class with absolutely no net no parental inheritance, no house I'm getting from my parents, no home of my own that I own. I am strictly savings account. If I don't work for a year, I'm moving in on your couch. You got room? So uh, poor is, is like the word racism to me. When people go white, when people accuse white people of racism, no, no, racism is a systemic issue. White people have never not had all the power in this world. Even if you specifically white person are like, I don't have any power. My mom makes me clean my room. I can't get a job. Okay. We're not talking about your anecdotal power in your own life. We're talking about white So. You can be someone white who's maybe experienced prejudice. There might be a black person, a brown person, an Asian person, someone, person of color that might say, I don't like white people. And you go, oh, that sucks. You've just experienced a little bit of prejudice. But no one's holding you down. That's not racism. You can look this up online. I'm not making it up. I, I always think that when, when a lot of young people tell me they're poor, I go, what? I don't know. Listen, now, I, this is just my humble opinion. I look at poor almost that same way as like systemic. Broke because you're in your early 20s. 
and you just got out of college and there's no jobs, just like when I got out of college. And, you know, you're in the gig economy and uh, you're in some college debt and you, you don't have a savings yet and you fucking really, you know, you don't got a pot to piss and you got three roommates. You're broke. Because maybe your parents own a house and they're only in their 50s. But in 20 years, when they kick, if they kick it in their 70s, and I hope they don't, I hope they live forever, but you're going to get their house. It's probably going to be worth a cool million. Or maybe you're, uh, again, just 22 and you just got 25 more years to uh, work and save. But I never called myself poor. I'd say broke. But uh, you can't argue with people online because you don't know their situation. But I said to this person that was going off on me, I gave it I gave it back a little bit. I said, isn't it ironic that you're telling me you're poor and it says sent from your iPhone? Now, I know. Listen, let me just take you down the path of creativity here. I, I actually know that, yes, even the brokest among us must have a smartphone to exist in the world. Now, I'm not a fucking idiot. But I go, it's just ironic. I mean... At the very least, it's ironic. And I think young people think the word ironic is, is a pejorative meaning suspicious, sus, as, they, as the kids say. No, I'm not saying it's sus. I'm saying it's ironic. Now, the reason it's ironic is because capitalism is so fucked up that even when you're broke, you have no choice but to take part in society by having a literal $1,000 computer camera phone in your pocket because that is the only way for you to exist in society. You can't really just have a flip phone. You got to be texting, sending this. If you're in the gig economy, maybe you're an Uber driver. Maybe you're an Instacart deliverer. Maybe you're a content creator. Maybe you need a Venmo. I don't know. But you've got to have some kind of electronic situation, right? It makes it a lot easier. And you can get loans on that stuff. They make it easy to go into debt to get their stuff because that's how it works. That was the evil genius of the smartphone revolution. It's not just for rich people. Everybody has one. I literally, and you've seen it too, people who are unhoused, homeless people on the streets can sometimes have a smartphone. But it is still ironic, even if it's, even if I understand why, but you say ironic to a young person that their head explodes. And I'm sorry to be old Aunt Jen here shitting on younger people, but I'm sorry. I got to call it like I see it when some bullshit is generational. So this person's like, oh, I guess I'm, I'm like, you don't even get that I'm on your fucking side. I know you got to have an iPhone, but here's the deal. Since, since, like, if I know that you, broke kid, needs to have a $1,000 iPhone, and it doesn't mean you're secretly rich or your priorities are all fucked up, if I know that, then you got to give me the respect to know anyone promoting a Patreon is on the up and up, mostly. Maybe you got to take it case by case. I don't know. The most people that don't need money, this, does that seem like a fun way to spend your day promoting a thing? Here, join for five bucks here and there. Is that really what rich people do? Because I don't think it is. I do it, not in like a sad way, but it's my job. So I have to do it. 
you know? So this notion that like, oh my God, that woman who has it all, what's she doing? She's promoting her Patreon on Twitter. I mean, just say it out loud. So it's stupid. So just the fact that like, I get your situation. Why don't you get mine? Oh, I know. Cause your generation doesn't look at anything, but your own fucking ass. I'm not even in a bad mood. I'm like in a great mood. If you were a Patreon subscriber, you'd see I've been smiling throughout this whole thing. But man, man, oh man, does promoting suck. So, uh, I like to... Uh, well, I, I was going to say I like to overhear things. That's not a, that's not really a choice. But I enjoy every once in a while when I overhear things and I go, oh, that was a delight. I'm so glad I overheard that. I wish I overheard more weird things because I got, I got minutes to fill on my weekly podcast. So I'm at the frozen yogurt shop and I stop in. Get a sorbet. And they've got, oh, they got a good one. They got a watermelon sorbet. Mm -mm -mm. It's been a million degrees every day in Los Angeles. Again, as I say, September is our summer. And I know it. I've lived here 20 years. But September, I start getting in that fall mood. I want to wear a sweater. Nope. I'm sweating between my tits. It's hot out. No sweaters. So, anyway, I'm going to get my watermelon sorbet to cool down. There's always kids in this yogurt place. And I shouldn't get mad. That's who should be in there. Small children and their parents. But I really wish parents, if you have seven children with you, and I'm not kidding. There's usually like, it's like one parent is taking their kids and then like the neighbor's kids. And you see like a 40-something woman in her Pilates clothes. Can you just let her go first? I'll pay real quick. I won't even pay with cash, which I want to do with smaller transactions. I'll use my card. I'll get in. I'll get out. Do you really get Billy? J- Jimmy, Bill, everyone put your things down. Um, oh, where did he go? I'm like, my shit's melting, lady. I'm in menopause. My hands are hot. Can I go first? So I'm at the yogurt place and there's kids everywhere, but thank God they're all sitting down I'm the only one in line. I get through the line. And I hear this woman. I I don't see her right away. I turn around, but I hear this woman go, and don't forget, Johnny is your uncle, and he's got a husband named Stephen. Okay? And she's screaming it. So I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to turn around and see Johnny and his husband, Stephen. And this woman's introducing them for the first time to some kids. And I turn around, it's just a woman sitting with two, maybe four-year-olds. And they're like, "Uh," you know, when kids just like, you can tell they're listening because in two weeks, they'll come up to you and go, where's Johnny and his husband, Steve? But in the moment, you're getting nothing from them. It's like talking to someone who just got out of anesthesia. They're like, that's so great. And they're just licking a spoon and, you know, wiping 
marshmallow fluff on their face. And and the mom is talking and she's like, or I don't know if it's a mom, but the, the woman, okay. And they're like, uh-huh. and she's like, and then my brother, which is your uncle Bobby, he has a boyfriend named Timothy. Okay. And they're like, hi. And I'm like, what is this conversation? So she's got two gay guys in the family and they're both in quality relationships is what I'm hearing. One's married, one's got a boyfriend. Now I'm trying to figure out her angle. Is she about to bring the kids around to the homes of these men and men in her life? Is she worried about some latent homophobia that that children would have or or not latent but um like she thinks like a, their natural reaction to two men would be homophobia which we all know with children it's not that's learned but that's fine you know tell your kids tell your kids all about those gay men that get married <laughs> but i mean i couldn't figure it out and i was like what if she's just super bitter oh and it's just coming out in this weird way and the kids are like trying to talk about other things you know maybe they're like when can we watch sesame street or i don't know what tv show kids watch now in my day it was sesame street when can we watch boopy doopy and the hoopy doopy kids i want to remind you my brother bobby has a boyfriend Timothy, (laughs) isn't that rich? Bobby, the eternal bachelor, you know? He used to sit on the couch naked after he got back from the gym with his sweaty balls. And it was a cream-colored couch. And I said, you know, who is going to love you? You stink. Meanwhile, I got stood up at the prom junior and senior, never had a boyfriend in college. My roommates did. I'd stand outside the door while they were having sex. I would listen. I wasn't trying to listen, but that was so loud. I was like, surely is anyone that good and bad? I mean, so here comes Timothy. I mean, all of a sudden, Timothy's moving in with my brother, Bobby. I'm like, you know, he sits on the couch with his naked butt all sweaty. And Timothy's like, no, he doesn't. And Bobby's like, Susie, that was one time. Why are you acting like I'm unlovable because of that one time? And she's like, I don't know. Men are impossible. It's impossible to find a man. And Bobby's like, I found lots of men. Oh, it's different when you're gay. And he's like, not really. I had a lot of discrimination my whole life. Shut up. Anyway. Oh, here. Oh, great. You've had discrimination your whole life. And then all of a sudden, it's legal to get married. And here you go. It's been legal for me the whole time. No one to marry me. You'd think I was the one who was in this situation for most of her life where it was illegal. Maybe it's just illegal to marry me. I mean, maybe she's just so bitter. And that's the only thing on her mind. And she's, they're like, you know, they're not even her kids. It's like, she's got another sister who's like, Susie, can you take the kids? I am exhausted. I've been 
you know, doing these Zoom meetings from home and huh, it's just crazy. She's like, oh, sure, I'll take your kids. What else do I have to do? I'm just an old maid. Well, go to frozen yogurt. I've got a phone number there. I get discounts. You buy a hundred, you get one free. As long as you buy the hundred within a two-week period. Don't worry, I do. Ugh, all right, kids. Well, and then she just goes into her thing. And these guys are married. Well, good for them. Good for them. I really wanted to know. And I, I stood there for a while and just sort of listened at the door, just lingered a little bit, pretending I was organizing things in my purse. I don't know why. I should just be able to stand there. She doesn't have to assume I'm listening to her, but it kind of was obvious that I was. And she didn't say anything more, maybe because I was standing there listening, but I, I got to know what that was all about. I don't have an ending to the story because there isn't one. I didn't, I don't blame me. She didn't wrap it up for me and go, kids, the reason I'm telling you that. <laughs> no, I, Jen, you're the comedian. You think of a funny ending. Oh, shut up. I've had enough of all your fucking complaints. <laughs> uh. Then I was a total Karen. I was a total white woman Karen. But okay, so here's the thing. We all know we have white people, right? We all know we have white privilege, right? And, and that's not just that the cops aren't going to pull us over for no reason. But we kind of walk through the world. You know, maybe there's a world where you just like say certain things at certain times and you've never thought to censor yourself because just unconsciously there's never been a consequence because you're white and you're, you know, white people aren't going to penalize you for whatever you said, but maybe a person of color would have gotten penalized for saying the same thing. You know, that kind of stuff, right? That you don't even think about, you've done it your whole life. Men, you're, you know, get the benefit from the patriarchy in small ways, you know, you, you do that too, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so we all have our privileges, right? And I like to think, I know, like, I like to think after I might have just cis or white privileged out that I can go, oh shit, that was totally that. But I think I acted like a Karen and it probably seemed like a white woman thing, but it was really a generational snobbery thing. It was me thinking I know everything about music and that anyone in their 20s is disrespectful and knows nothing. Because on this very podcast, I talked, was it maybe six months ago, about an article I read that was like, Gen Z doesn't know any Prince songs and they don't think he was that great. So that lives somewhere in my head. That rattles around in there. And I'm just like, what? When I have nothing else to be annoyed about, I'm like, fuck is wrong with these people? You know, just rattles around my head. So I'm at um, this wine bar in my neighborhood. Now, again, I haven't been hanging around inside there due to COVID, even though I'm vaccinated, whatever. And it's very small and there's usually like no, that has an outside. But when I meet up with friends to have a drink, that's usually where we go. So I was meeting up with a friend and I went up to the counter because you have to go like order your drink at the counter and then bring it outside. So I was a little early before my friend got there and I went up to the counter and I know the people there. I'm like, oh, hey, can I try the um, Cabernet something blend? So there's a guy sitting 
at the counter uh, working and having a glass of wine. He's got his computer out, blah, blah, blah. And the music they're playing is great. It's, it's, uh, it's kind of got a funk thing going on. So all of a sudden, the Prince song 1999 comes out. Now, I know we all know that song, right? Even you Gen Z kids. But there's a version of it that starts really weird. And I'm going to find it. Um, it doesn't just start. Dun, 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 dun. It starts with, don't worry, I won't hurt you. Here, I'm going to play it right now. Okay, so that started playing really loudly in the restaurant. And the kid working behind the counter is like kind of this like surfer dude kind of looking guy. He looks just like, um, do you know Lucas Gage, the actor? He's that, if you remember, uh, well, he was in the White Lotus. He's the one whose butt was being eaten by the, uh, the other guy there. But he's also the kid who went viral on Twitter because he was doing an audition in his uh, one-bedroom apartment, and the director was like, these people in their shitty apartments. He's like, hello, I can hear you. Um, yep, sorry, I'm a young actor of a shitty apartment. Anyway, the uh, guy that works at the wine bar looks just like this kid. So when that Prince thing started, right, he stops what he's doing, and he looks up, and he's like, whoa, like, what's that noise? And I knew, oh, this is the beginning of the remastered 1999. And the guy at the counter who was doing work is a black guy, young, young black guy, probably late 20s. And the, the thing is so loud. Like this, this thing that I'm hearing is louder than the music was. That it was louder than the song that was on before that. So, you know, suddenly it's like way too loud. And now I can't hear what anyone's saying really. But I see the kid, the Lucas Gage kind of kid behind the counter. Whoa, what's this sound? And then I see the, the guy sitting there, the young black guy working. He goes, Drake. And the kid's like, what? And he's like, Drake. And he says, um... I guess Drake has a new song out and it's a cover of something. Hang on one sec. Drake's new song, which is a cover. Or maybe it's not. Wait. Hang on. Or maybe that's not it. I, I forget. I'm already forgetting. That. It doesn't matter. Okay. So I just hear him go Drake. And the kid's like, oh, really? And he's like, yeah, Drake. It's great. And I go, this isn't Drake. This is Prince. I yell across. <laughs> I mean, it's not them. And they're like, what? And I go, this is Prince. And the guy working goes, oh, I know this is Prince. I know my music. I go, oh, sorry. I got nervous because I say to the Lucas Gate, you looked confused. And then you said Drake. And uh, 
the young black guy was like, oh, no, I wasn't even listening to this song. I was just, he was just randomly starting a conversation with the sommelier going, Drake. That's how he started a conversation. He just said the word Drake. And then the, the other young guy was like, oh, cool. And so they knew, they understood their weird young people talk. And they were saying, yeah, the new Drake song's great. And I go, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean a, I totally was just a, sorry. And he's like, I, of course I know Prince in this song. I go, I, I didn't know not everyone knows the weird beginning. And I was like, and I kept saying, and I go, I'm old and I get defensive about music. And he's like, well, I mean, I get defensive about music. And I'm like, I'm trying not to be like, I'm not a Karen. I'm not a white woman that just yells out things and interjects herself. It's totally what I was doing. But I swear to God, I know, like, in other words, there are times when you can go, oh my God, I unconsciously was doing a thing. But I was like, maybe it was unconsciously also a Karen move, but I was consciously being a fucking generational snob where I was just like, I really can't sit here and not have people know that this is 1999. I just can't. Like, if I, I can't. My whole life has been for nothing if people don't know this song. Because this song is what gave me my first panic attack at age eight because it was about the bomb coming. I mean, it's just like there's so much weight behind it. But instead, I just looked like a fucking Karen. And you know what? Maybe there, maybe you go, no, I did a um, science project on you, what you said and we ran the numbers and... That was also white privilege that made you yell out. But anyway, so then we kept chatting and he's like, you got to hear the new Drake song. And I'm thinking to myself, I really don't, though. I don't like Drake. And I don't I already know I don't need to hear the new song. But I was like, oh, I'll check it out. I'm not, I can't even find it. I'm Googling Drake. And they're like, he had an album out in 2020. I'm like, I don't even know what year it is. Wouldn't it be too soon for him to have another one in 2021? Probably not. Don't even email me. Uh, technically, I don't care. I don't care. I don't want to know a thing. He also tried to date Millie Bobby Brown, who's 13. And he's not 13. So I, I had nothing to do with him. I wonder if I'm someone else's overheard. If they're like, this girl was at a wine bar ordering and she just shouted out, this is Prince 1999 to a young black man. What's her problem? <laughs> Some other woman's just started a podcast. It was the only other person in the restaurant and she decided to start a podcast based on me doing that. Oh God, I don't even, I don't even know anymore. I was thinking about um, Ronald Reagan. You know, guys, I'm always thinking about Ronald Reagan. I mean, enough with Ronald Reagan. <laughs> but uh, no, I was thinking about him because um, my friends uh, have a podcast about the paranormal and I was a guest on their podcast and we did a staged reading of, I don't know if you guys have seen this. I think it's fake. It's like a, almost fan fiction, but it's fun to dream that it's real, but um, there's this thing online you can find. It's it's like the Reagan transcripts from Camp David from 1981, where basically the newly elected Reagan is taken to Camp David and he's briefed by the CIA about the existence of aliens uh, that actually 
aliens had landed in America in the 40s, that there were dead aliens found at a crash site. Uh, there was one live alien that was alive for years, and President Nixon and Ford had the same briefing, but they wanted President Reagan to know there are five species of aliens. Uh, most are friendly, but one species is extremely hostile. And it's this like 25-page thing. It's a really fun read. And you're reading it going, God, I wish this was real. So anyway, but I was I was reading it and, and uh, I was doing some Googling, as I do. Ow, I just hit my ankle. And uh, the reason I'm talking about this is because I'm talking about the concept of failure of imagination. I listen to a lot of political podcasts and one thing I'm so tired of hearing, and I, we heard it a lot, right? Like last week, as we celebrated the 20th anniversary of 9-11, it's like, oh, it was a failure of imagination. We never thought planes would go into a building. Oh, Donald Trump became president. We all thought he was a joke. It was a failure of imagination that he would become president. Oh my God, when he lost the election and there was an insurrection, it was a failure of imagination that he would start a coup. And it's like women and people of color are like, not for us. None of this shit was a failure of our imagination. We told you to vote for Hillary. She was the thing between us and the apocalypse. And so I, you know, I'm always ranting and raving. Well, why don't we get people with a fucking imagination to run things? If you must have white men run everything, can you get some that have some imagination? And, you know, I, I'm no Reagan defender, please. He did a lot of bad stuff, but the one area I'll give him credit, just the teeny tiny area I'm going to give Ronald Reagan credit, is this article I read, and this is not fake, unlike the transcript I told you about. During the Cold War, when we were, you know, some would say on the brink of possible mutually assured destruction, nuclear war with the Soviet Union, Reagan met with Gorbachev and said to him, this is like early in his presidency. This is not Alzheimer's Reagan. This is all systems go Reagan. Dead serious. Says to Gorbachev, if there are aliens and they attack us, can we come together and sort of pause our Cold War to fight the aliens together. Can we not turn on each other? And Gorbachev was like, you got it, buddy. That I can do. Now, that's insane. But that was totally... I'm going to find it. I'm going to read it to you just so you don't... Jen, we, you're, that's not true. It's true. Hang on one sec. And the, I'm going to tell you why I think it's kind of cool. Um, you should see what I'm putting into Google. It's like someone that doesn't know how to speak. Oh, here. This is from smithsonianmag.com. Reagan and Gorbachev agreed to pause the Cold War in case of an alien invasion. The 40th president of the United States was a big science fiction fan. 
At the Geneva summit in 1985, President Ronald Reagan and Soviet Premier Mikhail Gorbachev took a break from negotiations to take a walk. Only their private interpreters were present and for years. The details of what they talked about were kept secret from both the Russian and American public. But during a 2009 interview with Charlie Rose and Reagan's Secretary of State at the time, George Shultz, Gorbachev revealed that Reagan asked him point blank if they could set aside their differences in case the world was invaded by aliens. Schultz was talking about the Lake Geneva summit, and he mentioned the two leaders ducked out of a meeting to take a walk to a nearby cabin. I wasn't there, Schultz said before Gorbachev cut him off. Now, was Gorbachev on Charlie Rose? This article's written weird. Okay, but anyway, this is what... Um, from the Fireside House, President Reagan suddenly said to me, this is Gorby talking, what would you do if the United States were suddenly attacked by someone from outer space? Would you help us? I said, no doubt about it. He said, we too. So that's interesting, Gorbachev said. Too much laughter. As far as we know, aliens never tried to take over the planet during the 1980s, so Reagan and Gorbachev's informal agreement wasn't put to the test. But perhaps unsurprisingly for a president whose nuclear deterrent plan was nicknamed Star Wars, Reagan was a big science fiction fan. Um, Once in a while, Reagan's nerdy tastes in books influenced how he governed. During his tenure in the White House, he relied on the Citizens Advisory Council on National Space Policy, a think tank made up of astronauts, engineers, and science fiction writers for advice on future technology and the emerging importance of space policy. So I I thought that was kind of interesting because in that one area, Reagan did not have a failure of imagination. And I was just ranting and raving last week. Why aren't there writers or science fiction writers that attend high-level meetings for the government? Because clearly people do imagine things, a lot of things that we've imagined. I'm including myself. I fucking write for comedies. But, you know, that other writers have imagined have come true. And so... I mean, looking back as a kid in the 80s, it's kind of interesting to think that had aliens invaded, I mean, really, think about it this way. Imagine Reagan had not asked that of Gorbachev. And imagine if aliens invaded America. He wouldn't know. He would have no idea what Russia's intention was. Would they take advantage of the moment? And nuke us? Would they try to make a deal with the aliens and turn them away from us? I mean, you know, wouldn't that be what superpowers would do if another superpower invaded the other superpower's enemy? So he got ahead of it. Was like, I got it. I got a deal. Everybody, Gorbachev said he would. He'd be on our side. We'll be on his. As stupid as it sounds, imagine if we'd been invaded by aliens. You'd be like, oh, I'm glad he asked. We got the Soviet Union to back us up in this alien invasion that both superpowers are going to lose. But it was just reminding me because I was thinking about, you know, this new book that's probably out by the time this comes out, but the uh, 
the new Bob Woodward book. It's like, Jesus Christ, how many books are these people going to write about the Trump presidency? I'm not blaming them. They've got a, a fucking, I don't even know, 50-ton garbage can full of material. I don't, I don't know what the, what I was trying to say. A wealth of material. But it's this, uh, you know, I was nervous. I, I, I was so shocked at people who wanted Biden to win. I wasn't shocked at that part. But who were actually calmed when he won. I was like, y'all, um, so it's, what was it, like November 7th or 10th when the election was finally called for Biden. We have two and a half months until inauguration. Um, Trump is going to nuke California. (laughs) Anything could happen. There is no one running the place. Like he had gutted everything so that the only people working for him were crazy Trump sycophants. And yeah, once in a while you'd hear that one of these psychos was like, oh, I'm not doing that, you know. But you didn't know. You didn't know. So this General Milley, which people were mad at him forever, why didn't he quit in disgrace? Why didn't he resign and tell the truth? Well, I get it on one hand. You want everyone that... See, here's the problem. Sorry, I'm, I'm all over the place. But we think of Merrick Garland. He's not doing enough. He's too by the book. Yeah, I agree. I, I get frustrated. I wish he'd not try to act like I'm just going to keep the um, Justice Department together and, and not uh, investigate the former president. You know, that's sort of like a thing. It's sort of like an unspoken pact that we all have. Not me, but he was like, Obama didn't investigate Bush for war crimes. And this person didn't do that for that part, you know. But this is unprecedented, all the shit Trump was doing. We, we got to look at the fact that the man incited a coup. Uh, who knows? I'm sure Merrick Garland is working on it. He hasn't told me about it. But I have been podcasting with my phone off for the last 48 minutes. So maybe he's texted me. I don't know. But but my point is that. So that that can be frustrating. You go, oh, I wish they weren't so by the book. Can't they get inventive and figure out a way to honor the Justice Department, but also investigate the former president? And so with with General Milley, everyone's like, well, why didn't he do the buy the book thing and resign and then tell everyone what was going on in the White House? It's like, because a lot of people did that and it didn't matter. There was always enough people in power around Trump that go, so? There was nothing you could have said that would have made anyone go, you know what? That guy, that general just quit saying bing, 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 bing. Oh, boy, this is bad. No, they had no respect for any institution that they were part of. There wasn't like, oh, the generals said this. So Trump had successfully brainwashed the rest of the Republican Party who knows the why they went along with everything. I mean, there's a million reasons. We don't need to get into them. But it's like, yeah, sometimes General Milley played along with Trump's baser things, I think, so that he could stay, so that he could prevent a fucking nuclear war. There was no one, there were no adults in the house. And I honestly believe when you're dealing with literally a sociopath, a psychopath, somebody 
has got to do a few things here and there that publicly piss off America and go, why is that general, you know, seeming to let Trump do this? It's like, because if he leaves, there's really nobody left that gives a shit. So he's going to placate the crazy person. And then when Trump's locked in his room, eating his hamburgers, watching Fox News, talking on the phone to Sean Hannity, he's going to secretly go around and say, okay, everybody, just remember, we don't take orders from Trump when it's time to shoot off a nuke. We, we remember that. Now, what he was doing, so that's what's coming out in Bob Woodward's book, is that General Milley, this is the, first, the, the only other time this happened was under Nixon, right after he got impeached, is that General Milley was noticing Trump's state was completely unhinged, and he knew when someone is completely unhinged, they could go for the nukes. Now, there is a whole system in place where if the president says, I want to nuke something, then this person has to answer to that person. And then, you know, there's a system in place. It could take days to weeks of negotiation to launch a nuke. However, I think what General Milley had seen was, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a system in place for everything. The president doesn't completely have total power. But from what I've seen, none of the systems are working. So why don't I just go make sure that all the people that, you know, would have to actually shoot off the nuke, let's make sure the military really gets. Um, he went around and looked everyone in the eye. Do you understand protocol? He wasn't changing protocol. He was saying, let's make sure you guys aren't susceptible to Trump trying to change protocol. And everyone was like, we got it. So he was like, I, I got 14 days till this guy's out. I got to make sure he doesn't nuke anything. And so he basically talked to China and was like, we're not going to nuke you, so don't be scared, and but also don't fuck around. Just everyone stay calm. Don't fuck with us. We won't fuck with you. I mean, that's insane. But what I like about that situation is it's not a failure of imagination. Now, Trump didn't say, I'm going to go nuke everything, but he was very obsessed with the fact that he had launch code power, you know? And so this guy was like, look, I got to think of the worst case scenario and just make sure it doesn't happen. I like that. That's not a failure of imagination. And it can look crazy when you find out someone did that, just as it sounds crazy that Reagan said to Gorbachev, we're not going to fuck with each other. If we get invaded by aliens, we're going to help each other. Well, that's insane, you think to yourself. But that's only because it didn't happen. So in hindsight, it seems nuts. But if it had happened, you'd go, why couldn't anyone imagine this happened? Those comedians were yelling on their podcast that he was going to nuke something, you know? Didn't they see E.T.? Of course there were aliens. So I give credit where credit is due. No failure of imagination, Ronald Reagan, on that one particular. And General Milley, no failure of imagination in that Trump could potentially nuke China. Again, I think he could have nuked fucking California. Oh, God, I'm so political. <laughs> well, let's end the podcast on this. I, I'm I'm very sad that comedian Norm Macdonald passed away. Um, I didn't, I mean, he wasn't a friend of mine or anything. I didn't know he was sick. Um, he was 61. He was, it, it's funny, on my Patreon, this is not an ad, but I, one of my bonus episodes, I was talking about parasocial relationships and how, there's a lot of articles being written about 
the fans of John Mulaney being disappointed in him and his wife breaking up and you got Olivia Munn pregnant, blah, blah, blah. And the fans have a parasocial relationship. And I was just telling my story about my thoughts on parasocial relationships, but I made mention of John Mulaney that I know him, you know, acquaintance wise, like from around comedy, but that I don't like sit around and watch his specials. And I was like, I don't really like anyone's comedy. And I was like, but I love, I love Norm Macdonald. I said that the day before he died. I, I swear to God, whenever I mention someone's name, they either die or they get me too'd. Um, you know, like within a week. But I was so sad. And I think he's definitely, you know, I, I only really like a few comedians and they're all like older than me. And he was one of those people that I just loved since I was a teenager. So it's in the DNA, you know? And one of those joke tellers is so different than me. You know, he believed in not revealing your yourself uh, through your comedy, really, you know, not telling personal stories, like the, the literal opposite of what I do. And I am, I'm always into comedy that's the literal opposite of what I do. And God, just the way he said stuff was funny. And he insists in so many interviews that he he really doesn't rely on his cadence to be funny, that he's a real joke smith, you know? And and uh, I, I respect and believe him, but I'm also just like, yeah, but you could give those jokes to anybody and they don't come out the way they do when he says them. And so I was obsessed with him when he was on SNL. I just thought he was the funniest fucking thing. Oh my God. God, the the weekend update and and he made these OJ jokes. I mean, they were non-stop. And, you know, they say that's why he got fired because Don Olmeyer was the head of NBC and he was OJ's best friend and, you know, golfing buddies, rich guy shit. And he didn't like the jokes about OJ being a murderer. And uh, they told Norm, you know, maybe don't keep doing that. And he did it. But he wasn't this edgelord. You know how guys these days are like, I'm edgy. I can't say anything. Norm was just like, I don't understand. Like, I want to say this. I think there was some neurodiversity in Norm. I don't know if he was on a spectrum or whatever, but just from the little bit I did know him, like there was something was something. Does that make sense? But he was the first famous comedian I ever saw live on stage. And I literally felt like a bolt of lightning was going through me when I saw him. It was just exhilarating. I, I was 21, I think. I was uh, just starting in comedy. Maybe I was 22. I mean, I think I've been doing comedy like a month. And I went to see him at this place, The Comedy Connection in Boston, which I, does not exist anymore. It's a comedy club. And, and, you know, I've talked a million ways to Sunday on this podcast that you're not a loser if you play comedy clubs, but you're not like this rich, famous comedian. You know, like, and some people like comedy clubs. Plenty of rich, famous comedians do play them. But there's also a notion of like, if you're playing a comedy club, it means, you know, you got to do four shows and deal with the fucking drinks being served. And it's not like you're doing a theater filled with 5,000 people, you know. But to me, I mean, I don't know any of that shit yet. I'm new. And to me, it's just like, I knew I wanted to do comedy, but it wasn't until I saw him that I was like, I have to do comedy. I have to. Whatever this feeling is, like I'm going insane right now. I can't sit still. Like this is my calling. And it's just so funny that I don't feel that way now. And so I went and hung out um, in the hallway near the bathroom. And, you know, there was no like meet and greets back then or social media or I'm selling this. It was like you do the show 
you fucking leave and that's it, you know, but not me. I I need to meet him. So I'm standing by the bathroom. And he comes out and I'm like, Norm, Norm, I'm smoking my cigarette indoors. And I'm like, how do I get to be a successful comedian like you? And he's like, successful. He's like, I'm on Saturday Night Live, but I'm still playing clubs. He's like, oh, if you find out, let me know. And he wasn't mean. It was just his cadence. And then I was like, he's like, you do comedy? I'm like, yeah, but the, the guy that runs the club here says women aren't funny. He's like, ah, they said that to Janine Garofalo. Look at her now, you know. And I, I used to tell that story all the time to young people because I was like, I realized as I was asking him these asinine questions that like what I really wanted was him to go, oh my God, I think you're so funny based on nothing. Let me take you to where I am in this business. What have you been doing comedy four weeks, couple open mics? Yeah. No, you're ready. Let me bring you into the fold. I will uh, have you do some jokes on Weekend Update. I'll take you on the road with me. I mean, literally, that's what you deep down think. No one's actually ever asking a comedian true advice. Or maybe you're like, no, I actually don't think that when I ask people for advice. But that's what I thought. And so when he answered me like this very real thing that was just like, what? I was like, oh, I'm an idiot. And so I, you know, said, thanks. You're really funny. Bye. And uh, that was it. But I never asked another comedian again for help or anything because I was like, what can they can't do anything, you know? But you learn that when you do something dumb face to face. But kids these days, they get to, oh my God, this whole podcast, right, has been like old lady theater. But, you know, kids these days, they get to uh, email you and face no humiliation when you write back. I don't fucking know. Or maybe it is humiliating. I don't know. But I always think email is a little easier than in person. But anyway, I just remained the biggest fan. And, and, my, my friends, Patrick and Brian, who I, I started comedy with back in Boston, we were just loved Norm. And, and, you know, I watched every single talk show he was a guest on. It was, oh, so fucking funny. And I loved when he'd do stuff with David Spade, you know, if they were both the guest on a show. And, oh, my God, it just, there was something so cool about Norm, even though I understand now that he was cripplingly shy, really dorky, kind of old-fashioned, he wasn't cool, like, you know, like, I don't know, like the, the rock star comedian thing that people try to have. But to me, he just was so effortlessly cool and seemed like he didn't give a shit. And um, there was a deep humility there, too, you know. Anyway, so I met him uh, in 2014. I was doing a little pilot presentation with my friend Michael Ian Black, and then our producer, this guy, um, had this little office on one part of town, and Norm um, shared the office next door. So I don't know, something like that. And and he's like, oh, Norm's coming by today. I was like, oh, my God, I'm the biggest fan. And I met Norm, and um, I wasn't like, I'm a comic too. It was just kind of obvious I was something to do with comedy, but like I wasn't going to do that fucking thing again. But I said, hey, I saw you in the late 90s at the Comedy Connection. He's like, oh, I got. And I was like, you had this joke that I loved. And he's like, what was it? And I told him, and he's like, I have no recollection of that joke. I was like, it was so funny. <laughs> he just did this thing that was like, he goes, you know, my mother told me uh, 
I mean, if you start going to parties, be careful. Because someone's going to put something in your drink if you leave your drink unattended. Don't, don't ever put your drink down. because someone That's what happens at these parties is someone's going to put something in your drink. And then when I found out that my mom had, someone's going to put drugs in my drink. Well, then why, why is that a bad thing? So I would go to parties and, and you know, basically his story is no one ever put anything in his drink, but he'd go to parties. Well, I'm putting my drink down now. I'm going to walk away for about 10 minutes. <laughs> it was, but it was this like long drawn out thing. It was so funny. I don't know why it was so funny to me, but it just killed me. Anyway, so I met him for, you know, one minute that day. And then that was it. We never ran in the same circles or anything. And then one day he DM'd me on Twitter and not in a creepy way. Um, somebody had tagged him. He did something, you know, he was always doing something. He'll say something and people take it the wrong way. Oh, he's a sexist or, you know, something like that. And someone was like, I hope Jen Kirkman doesn't find out about this. And then he DM me. He's like, I don't know what that person's talking about. Do you? And I was like, no, it, they're just, I'm, I'm kind of a big mouth and I, you know, I, this was like way post Louie. And I was like, you know, I was like, I know you don't know who I am. He's like, I know who you are. And I was like, really? Wait, I got to find these. So at this point, this is two years ago. So he apparently had cancer for 10 years and didn't tell anyone. And so ironically, like the last five years, I would see him on talk shows or just, you know, see him around and I would be like, oh God, Norm doesn't look that great. And I'd heard he was kind of forgetful. I knew people that were friends with him and he was taking, you know, um, not necessarily opioids, but like painkillers prescription. I was like, oh, does Norm have a drug problem? But he was never a drug guy or like a drinking guy. So I was like, oh, it's just one of those like sad, like late in life, like drug addictions. And so no, no, it was, he was really sick for a long time. And it turned out my friend Morgan Murphy, um, shared an office with him. They they wrote on a TV show together a couple of years ago and she knew him really well. And she was like, yeah, he's like really earnest and like not a creep. And just, she's like, again, like we both think there's some spectrum neurodiversity going on there. And um, he's like completely earnest and very literal. So it's kind of like it, it's interesting though. He talks in this weird old fashioned way that you're like, is he joking? Is he doing a character? But it's totally real. Because I was telling Morgan about like these DMs. She's like, oh no, he totally means it. Um, so, oh my God, do I still, do I not have these DMs anymore? I will die of sadness. Um, wait, hang on. I hope they didn't do, oh, here it is. It's from 2018. He says, uh, I think you're hilarious. And I'm constantly asked about so many things in interviews besides comedy. And I just want to do comedy. Um, I hope I, I, I'm sorry for any ordeals you've gone through. I hope you can get back to what you love and what you are great at. Take care as ever norm. And I was like, Oh my God, I can't believe you wrote me. And, uh, I was like, oh, I'm a huge fan. Your suicide joke from your Netflix special is like the fucking funniest thing. And he's like, oh, I'm an old man. Um, he's like, he just kept going on about like 
the kind of sexism stuff that someone had tweeted him about. He's like, I'm sure the male comedians today are very threatened by comedians such as yourself, but their behavior is bewildering. Um, He's like, why they would, he's talking about like men being predators to women. He's like, why they would want to wreck a beautiful friendship with one of their own is beyond me being a comedian. Um, he said, as I said, when when I began, there there weren't a lot of women comedians on the road. If there had been, what a wonderful thing it would have been to have friends like that who can make you laugh. Um, but these kids should look to their peers for something other than women to demean. Um, but at the beginning of my career, I know a lot of male comedians and some are the most beautiful souls, but the vast majority are very small and ugly. And of course, I know who you are, Jen. I know every funny person in this world of ours. There ain't many. And I was like, okay, so I told him that story I just told you about the uh, meeting him at the Comedy Connection. And I thought he would understand what I meant, which is that is such a funny story. I can't believe I bothered you. You know, what you said was funny. And he took it as that I was like, okay, Norm, it's been 20 years, but I need to tell you, you were mean to me. Like, And he was so sincere and apologetic. I was like, oh my God, no, 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 no. He's like, oh, ha, ha, ha. I seem unkind in that story. It makes me a little sad. I was very, very nervous in those days, frozen by stage fright and sick to my stomach anytime I wasn't on stage. Finally, that fear broke as a fever does from fatigue, and I was able to have some sort of life off the stage. It was such a great day. I remember it. I mean, who talks like this? But he actually talked like that. Uh, my sickness had me doing three and a half hour sets, not from ego, but from the fear of being off stage. When I recovered from that, everything changed. I became happy. I did no set over 90 minutes. I began really learning about stand-up. I'd like to work with you one day, Jen. Wouldn't that be fun? What's next for you in your career? Again, I'm so sorry I was a dick at the bathroom that night in Boston. I'm very happy now because I learned what everyone else knew years before me, that there's nothing in life to do but to give love. This man is like dying of cancer. I have no idea and I'm like, oh my God, he wants to work with me. And then I got that. And this is where men, where men go, these sexual harassers ruin it for the rest of us. It's like, well, you might be talking about trying to get laid, but I, because I'm so afraid of like men in comedy DMing me, uh, I wanted to ask him if he would do my Christmas show in 2018. I wanted him to play like a fucked up uh, Santa Claus that is the real Santa Claus and is like, I don't have the suit. Like I had a whole thing in my head for him. And I was too afraid to ask because I didn't, like in case he was hitting on me, I was like, oh, I don't want to, but he wasn't. I talked to a million people that know him. They're like, no, he really wasn't. He didn't even like, like not, not at all. He really was asking. I'm like, fuck. I mean, he was sick. So I don't know if he would have, but. um, So. Anyway, we talked more and more about like comedy and, you know, bits and like stuff like that. And I was like, just kind of telling him that like, even though his style is so different from me, like I I'm surprised to hear he had all that anxiety because to me, he seemed like the epitome of just like ease and whatever. And, and uh, he was a big influence on me, even though nothing I do looks anything like what he does. He just was an influence on me in the sense that I don't know. There was a vibe he gave off that I liked. It was, um, I, I, I really don't know how to explain it. I'm nothing like him on or off stage. Like I step in it all the time. I'm always like speaking my mind about this and he's just kind of like keeping it real, keeping it funny. And, uh, 
But he said, it's very cool to hear from people that saw you when you were younger, meaning me seeing him. He's like, and then you're old and you hear from them again. He said, I just heard from you and I heard from Ronan Farrow today. He goes, it blows your mind. He said, you will see when you get to be my age. He goes, I never got out of the small rooms, which I'm very grateful for. And I guess it never occurs to you that anyone prominent ever really saw you. I love that he thinks I was prominent. One time I was young, I saw Elizabeth Taylor on the Larry King show and he asked her what she liked doing. And she said, mostly I watch TV. And I thought that was incredible. Think of how many famous, prominent people have laughed because of you, Jen. Isn't that incredible? Also, it makes me feel great about not being ambitious at all because I'm already just watching TV. Nothing changes. And that's the last he wrote me and I never wrote back. And I'm so fucking mad that I didn't because he was like, tell me more what's going on, like, like about comedy and life. And I just fucking ignored him because I was afraid of dudes because of what had happened to me with Louie and so many other guys. And fuck you, Louie. Fuck you in the fucking face because you made me so scared of so many dudes. I didn't know what way was up. I didn't know who I could trust. And I, uh, it's not your fault, but fuck you. Um, so there you go. Rest in peace, Norm. I, I, uh, Yeah. I'm going to end on um Norm's um memoir that he wrote called Based on a True Story is like mostly completely made up. It's totally insane. It's very funny, but it also reads like Russian literature, but the last chapter is completely sincere. And uh, I think this book came out like probably one of the more serious bouts he had with his cancer a couple years ago. I think he did think he was dying like soon. And he wrote, um, and it just reminded, oh God, it just reminded me so much of how I feel lately about like not doing comedy anymore. Cause like, as I always keep saying, like it didn't quite work out the way I wanted to. And then I think about Norm and I'm like, well, like he wrote me, he never got out of the small rooms, you know? Um, it's like, but his like good friends are like Chris Rock, who's playing like thousand seat theaters. And to me, they're like equal, but they're not in terms of like the ticket sales world and popularity. But so it's just interesting where it's like, I don't know. Um, maybe there's more gratitude I could have, you know, for sure. I mean, obviously, and, you know, making a decision to not tour because it's not financially viable or it's like too much work and absolutely no financial security, like that's different, but I can still be grateful about it and perform when I can. I'm trying to be, I just, I just know I need to like still tweak my attitude a little bit. And like, I have a friend that was really close with Norman and they were telling me like, yeah, he was super like spiritual and into God and like totally sincere about it. And I just love that about him, you know? So anyway, um, he was very, he was one of those middle-aged comedian men that didn't get cruel or anti-vax or anti-mask or fucking right wing. Like he just got kinder. Um, 
So this is, I'm just going to read the last couple of pages of his book. There is the way things are and then the way things appear. And it is the way things appear, even when false, that is often the truest. If I am remembered, it will always be by the four years I spent at Saturday Night Live. And even more than that, by the events surrounding my departure from that show. As long as SNL exists, then so do I. When people come to see me do stand-up, it is because somewhere in their memory, I live on SNL, dressed as a young Burt Reynolds, insisting Alex Trebek refer to me as Turd Ferguson. And they come to see me, and I am old and fat, and I don't mention SNL, and I do my answering machine joke, and they are happily disappointed. After the show, they stand beside me and take pictures, the way you would with a donkey at the side of a road. They Tell me they are big fans and they don't care what their girlfriends say. Oh, God, do I relate to that? Uh, No one I know likes you. Thanks for coming to the show. (laughs) They understand me, even though they know good and well that nobody else does. I'm dry, they say. The next time I come to their town, they don't show up. Ha! Relating. It can be difficult to define yourself by something that happened so long ago and is gone forever. It's like a fellow at the end of the bar telling no one in particular about the silver medal he won in high school track, the one he still wears around his neck. The only thing an old man can tell a young man is that it goes fast, real fast. And if you're not careful, it's too late. Of course, the young man will never understand this truth. But looking back now, I can see that my life since SNL has been a full sprint, trying with all my might to outrun the wolves of irrelevancy snapping at my heels. It has all been in vain, of course. They caught and devoured me years ago. But not completely. Lorne would see to that. My foot would still make a vague imprint. Myself would still cast a faint shadow. And years later, I would write a book. And not only write it, but be in it as well. I think a lot of people feel sorry for you if you were on SNL and emerged from the show anything less than a superstar. They assume you must be bitter. But it is impossible for me to be bitter. I've been lucky. If I had to sum up my whole life, I guess those are the words I would choose, all right? When I was a boy, I was sure I'd never make it past Moose Creek, Ontario, Canada. But I've been all over this world, except for Europe, Asia, Australia, Africa, and South America. Oh, and Antarctica. (laughs) But that's really splitting hairs. I mean, how many people have ever been to Antarctica? I never expected to be any more than a common laborer, and I would have considered myself lucky to have achieved that. But I was blessed with so much more. I've I'm a stand-up comedian and have been for over a quarter of a century. I've performed thousands of hours from a small club in Ottawa, Ontario, all the way up to a small club in Edmonton, Alberta. Sometimes I get laughs and think I'm the best stand-up in the whole world, and other times I bomb, and I think I'm not even in the top five. Before I was famous, I had a whole bunch of jobs where all I needed was boots. People would look right past me, or if they did look at me, it was with a mean look. But when I got famous, people would look at me and smile and wonder where they knew me from. If they flat out recognized me, they'd laugh and dance like they'd won a prize. And I'd just stand there and smile and feel warmth from their love. So fame made the world, which is a real cold place, a little less cold. And as for my gambling, it's true, I lost it all a few times. But that's because I always took the long shot and it never came in. But I still have some time before I cross that river. And if you're at the table and you're rolling them bones then there's no money in playing it safe. You have to take all your chips and put them on double six and watch as every eye goes to you and then to those red dice doing their wild dance and freezing time before finding the cruel green felt. I've been lucky. Oh. Until next week, have fun. Rest in peace, Norm MacDonald. 